Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Great, so yeah, we are doing a, a live recording, so Adam, welcome to The Mentor List. Thank you, and thank you to everyone for coming, because I know if I had the choice, I'd be listening to Amanda, so, um, <laughs> and I was going to until I was asked, I was like, oh, <laughs> but thank you. Well, you'll be able to listen to yourself over and over again now, because we're recording this session. Lucky me. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we're here live at Melbourne Business School alumni session, day one. We are the first session up. We've just had the opening address by Tristan and Dean Zager, who's soon to move on to other endeavours. So I might just give you a quick synopsis. I know some of Adam's cohorts here, so you'll sort of know and work with Adam also. So I'll just give you a couple of headlines just so you get a flavour of what Adam's been doing post and during and after Melbourne Business School. So, Easy Car in London, this was back in 2000. 2008, McLaren Vale Beer Company, the fastest growing beer company in Australia for two years consecutively. You'll correct me if my stats are wrong, won't you? And I'll edit it out. A bit of inflation doesn't hurt. Yeah, great. <laughs> Independent Brewers Associations. I have trouble with some words. So, Brewery Brewers is going to struggle. So, that was in 2011. 2009, finished his MBA. So, obviously, things are happening in parallel. So, we can sort of dig into, you know, how do you deal with that sort of amount of stuff on your on your pipeline and you know what does burnout play a factor ey young entrepreneur of the year back in 2011 if my finalist not an actual not an actual young entrepreneur of the year got it okay so kickstart in 2012 so we can talk about where that idea came from where it's grown to today and you're still there currently but a lot's happened since then so i might sort of stop talking i think i've given a bit of a flavor as to what you've been up to but maybe if you can give us your side of the story. I will. And look, I always find these a bit awkward because you look around the room and everyone's got an amazing story and something to offer. So I always take the approach of actually sharing a lot of the mistakes I've made and what I've learned and how other people can benefit rather than professing and advertising, you know, successes and things like that. So for me, I can sort of chunk my professional life down into three key segments or phases. I grew up in Adelaide and studied accounting and started in the chartered accounting profession. I don't tell many people that now, but people are shocked when they hear that, when you're in the beer industry and walking around in jeans and a T-shirt and whatnot. But that's where I started and actually thought I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it. So the first phase of my career I sort of called finance, which was accounting and tax, corporate finance and treasury. And it consisted of Ernst & Young, PKF, another firm in Adelaide, and then some time in Treasury in London with Diageo, big uh, listed drinks company around the world. And that was a sort of a six-year period from 1996 to 2002, and it covered Adelaide and London. As soon as I was a chartered accountant, like everyone did of my year at the time, literally the next day you resigned once you had your chartered accountant certificate and you took off to London. You can see James nodding over here, and I'm pretty sure he did the same things. But it was a great grounding and a great sort of discipline to have, and it was very portable. So it actually enabled a lot of us to head to London. And I was in London for three years, and that's kind of where the second phase of my sort of professional career started. So I had a year in Treasury, in the Treasury Department of Diageo, massive UK listed company that owns the likes of Smirnoff and Guinness and you know whatnot around the world. But I hated Treasury. It was um, not me, but it's paid the bills for the first year. And I was lucky 
to be in the right place at the right time with a headhunter that was looking for people for what was called Easy Group. And so it was Sir Stelios Hadjuanu now who had started EasyJet, the airline, and then Easy Everything it was called at the time, which were the internet cafes. And he had a massive brand and he then wanted to convert that into a group. And he was close to Richard Branson and he liked what Richard did with Virgin in creating the Virgin Group and a brand across many businesses. So Stelios set up Easy Group, which was a brand protector enhancer for the Easy brand and also an incubator of new businesses. And they were looking for a generalist finance person and luckily enough that was me so I was about employee number eight or nine of easy group based in Camden Town in January 2000 and they ended up sponsoring me so I was able to stay in London and we did two years of startups and one of them you're well researched was easy car which was a basically a car rental version of EasyJet. so Stelios gave a team of us 10 million pounds and said I want a car rental version of EasyJet. and what does that mean it means low cost one type of car, EasyJet had one type of airline, yield management, so you could buy a cheap airline seat, you could also rent a cheap car. So if you book 60 days out, you'd get it for £9 a day. If you book the day before, it'd cost you £65 a day. So we did that and we launched that business in four months. So we started in January 2000 and we launched it in April 2000 around Easter and actually on Easter weekend in three countries. So it was pretty intense and that's where I sort of say the start of my second phase began, which was I loosely called corporate development and consisted of corporate development, a little bit of startup, so the easy stuff. The easy stuff was well-funded by a, um, a backer and a, and a founder and that led into some other corporate development activities back in Australia, which I'll touch on. And so Easy Car was fun and that was my real first exposure to a startup, but it was a well-funded, safe startup because we had a brand. And we had money. So it wasn't coming up with an idea. It wasn't scrounging up for the money. It wasn't executing on that. But it was taking a great platform and executing on it. And How that did was- you get into sort of because that seems quite different to your tax, your accounting, or was that the transition into the Easy Brand? So what they were looking for was a person that had a bit more than accounting skills. And I had done treasuring and corporate finance with Ernst & Young in Adelaide. And I was probably able to sell the sizzle a bit and so when um, the headhunter was being very vague and saying look we've got a great opportunity coming up it's a startup blah 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 I kept pushing them until they said well it's actually easy group it's easy jet blah blah and I said look if you can go and get me in for an interview and I get it I'll guarantee I'll take the role and that was it and so sort of my role became a bit of a an odd jobs man so we did a bit of capital raising but the big thing for easy car was financing it so whilst we had 10 million pounds of kind of working capital to start with, we also ordered 4,000 Mercedes A-Class cars, which was the biggest order and owner of A-Class cars at the time. That car at the time was not the most popular car in the Mercedes-Benz fleet, so it was a good deal for them and a good deal for Easy Car, but we had no money to pay for it. And it was literally, long story short, the week before we were launching, we still hadn't signed the funding agreement. And the reason we hadn't was even though you got someone like Stelios behind it and 10 million pounds in the bank for working capital, that wasn't enough from a bank's point of view to finance 4,000 cars. We got there in the end, but that was sort of my, my transition in a startup was still bring some finance skills to it. And I guess I took to being part of a startup team well. And a lot of those people from that era at Easy Group are still mates of mine around the world that we keep in touch with admittedly periodically, but it was a great sort of culture an intense time and, and a challenging time, but we did create a, a great business that's had its challenges since, um, and that was a long time ago now, and we grew it from there. And to the end of Easy Car, the last thing I did was bring in private equity, so we brought in a couple of investors 
into the business. We had plans to float the business and really ramp it up around Europe and around the world. But for me personally, it was three years in London, you know, mid-20s, early-20s, and it was uh, you either stay in London and build your life there or you um, always knew if I came to Australia, I'd go to Sydney. So three years in London, like that just screamed beer to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I drank a lot of beer, yes. (laughs) But I have no qualifications in beer or the beer industry or anything like that. And that's been made up as we go and we'll come to that in a second. But So I made the the decision to leave London and move to Sydney and build my life there because I was wary of waiting till I was early 30s and moving back to Sydney and you've got you've had an amazing experience in London and done all these things and you rock up and people say so what you know who do you know in Sydney and Australia and Melbourne and whatnot and you've got no network and you've got no credibility so I chose to come back and I think that was the right thing to do and I did another four years of what I call corporate development corporate M&A work so easy group and then two other companies which was the CSR group so that's who I joined when I came back from London to Australia CSR at the time was a you know top 20 ASX company, very diversified, and I joined the corporate strategy group there. We then demerged CSR and effectively broke it in half and created a new company called Rinker Group, which was construction materials, so concrete and quarries and cement, very glamorous and very different to beer, but it was a great corporate organization. And Rinker Group, when it listed before it was taken over, was one of the most successful stock market stocks in Australia and at the time when it was purchased it was the largest cash takeover and so being in that ride and having broken away from CSR and then being put in a new listed company because we literally did divide the head office in half and it was a fresh new culture that wasn't kind of didn't have the legacy culture of CSR as a very old school established corporate it was quite American in its DNA the Rinker Group because 80% of the business was in the States in, in construction materials so I had four years there and it was fun and we did a lot of acquisitions. We were very active. So in terms of being on the corporate side, not, a, not being an investment banker and getting deals done internally was great. I had the opportunity to go to China for a year and do a, do a turnaround. So in December, December one year, the CEO, the Asia Pacific CEO came around to my desk and said, um, what are you doing next week, Adam? I said, nothing other than work. He said, good, you're coming to China with me. So he rushed and expressed emergency visa for me and we booked and went up. That was my first time into mainland China and it was meant to be just go up and fix some issues. The business needed to be turned around. It was having some governance issues. It was all the sort of usual issues that Australian companies setting up in China have. And at the end of the week, he said to me, I'm flying home and you're staying. And (laughs) I said, okay. Single guy at the time, Christmas is approaching. Then he got back to Sydney and rang me the next week and said, actually, can you be interim CFO and help fix this thing up? And I said, okay, I've got nothing else going on. So, sure. So, I flew back for Christmas and literally packed up my apartment. I was living with a mate in Sydney and off I went to China, first week of January. And that ended up becoming a, the best part of a year. I rocked up and unbeknownst to me, there was another guy, another young guy as well, who'd been planted up there from the Perth Ready Mix Concrete business. And the, on the first day, we got to know each other. Turns out we went to the same school in Adelaide three or four years apart. So he and I became really good mates and had a big challenge to help fix this business. And that was a real eye-opener for me. It was personally rewarding and very difficult. I was living in Tianjin. And if you don't know where Tianjin, it's basically two hours east of Beijing. It's the port city. And at the time, there would have been 40 or 50 expats in the whole city. It was a very industrial city. And I was in, I can't remember, mid to, mid to late 20s, and there was literally nothing to do. So, on the weekend, I couldn't speak any Mandarin, so I sort of forced myself to learn the basic level. 
couldn't catch a taxi because unlike Shanghai and Beijing, if you caught a taxi in Tianjin, you had to be fluent. Otherwise, you could, so I couldn't go anywhere. So on Saturday, the highlight was going to the DVD store with the company driver, and that was my life for a while until I sort of worked it out and went, started going to Beijing and Shanghai and uh, and Hong Kong every year. But during that period, we had it's a long time ago now, so I can talk about it. You know, but bribery, cash issues going on, which I had to report. So board investigations. I'm the bad guy with the um, not the guy from Perth, but the group general manager that was there. You know, who was the subject of the you know investigation so suddenly I'm the bad guy with him and you're trying to work with him every day and it was hard but it was also one of those things you come out the other end and then you do other things such as you know drinking too much because there's nothing to do mm-hmm. so all the expats just go to the bar every night at the Sheraton and that's it because there's nothing to do and there's 40 of them that know each other and so you're there every night and I got sick of that and you're putting on weight so eventually I snapped and started traveling on the weekends running every morning so I was this crazy Australian running at 6 a.m. around Tianjin every morning and I was like a circus theme, something like that. People were like, I'm an alien. Where did this guy come from? And um, But it was fun and after 40 years with Rinka, it was an opportunity came up with APN News and Media, which is a smaller, less famous media company compared to News or Fairfax. But APN was a very diversified and best known for being the leading media company in New Zealand through owning the New Zealand Herald and a few other assets, as well as now the largest broadcaster in Australasia through owning, at the time, a joint venture of the Australian radio network, which is KISS and Gold and all, and all these radio stations, as well as APN Outdoor, the billboard company, and AdShell, which is the street furniture advertising, bus shelter advertising, basically. And the opportunity at APN was to be the one-man band, corporate development, M&A, everything kind of dude. And it was a good opportunity to break away from Rinker, which was a much bigger company with structure and, and people above me, to go across to APN where I became a, a one-man band. And it was a good thing to do because two months later, Rinker was bought out and that all changed. And also two months later, APN became a takeover target from its major shareholder. So the first year I was there was a takeover defense and I ended up unskilled, but managing that with the bankers and the lawyers and everything else and thrown in the deep end, which was great. And my boss and mentor there at the time also gave me the freedom to kind of run with that. So I built a great network of lawyers and bankers in Sydney through that experience and a network of other people there. So after six years of Rinker and APN, I thought it was time to um, start the next phase. And that was what I call my startup kind of era. And that kicked off in 2008. So during that period at, at APN, those two years, a mate and I had sat down and con- decided we wanted to do something outside of our corporate jobs. He was a fund manager and I was doing what I've just told you about. We wanted to do something. We wanted to do something that would get us a return on capital and a return on time and that would be fun that we would learn. And we looked at a heap of things and we were very disciplined about it. We'd meet you know, once or twice a week. We'd meet for breakfast. We'd come with an agenda and we'd talk about things that we looked at and it was like, okay, what could we start up? Winery was one of them, a wine label. What could we buy? A concrete plant because I'd come out of that sort of industry and there's plenty of independent concrete plants for sale. We looked at buying a ski boat manufacturing business that was in distress and that would have been fun (laughs) and actually would have been quite a good uh, success, I think. But we didn't do that. And long story short, we started looking at beer. Both of us grew up in Adelaide. And so growing up in Adelaide, you were lucky in some regards because we had Coopers there. So everyone drank Coopers and so that's your introduction to cloudy ales as opposed to, you know, growing up in Sydney drinking Tui's or whatever or Queensland drinking 4X or, or Melbourne bitter or Carlton draft here. 
So you're sort of introduced to different beers just and you don't really think about it when you're growing up in the time, but it, it that was great. And so when we looked at beer, specifically we looked at craft beer as it's called, a segment within the industry which has boomed globally in the last 10 years, 20 years arguably in the US. And what we concluded was that Australia was going to follow the US, so that was kind of our macro view. And at a micro view, it had just started and really getting strong in Sydney and Melbourne, the likes of Mountain Goat. Back in the day in Sydney, there was uh, Blue Tongue, uh, St. Arnu and some other, and Barron, some other brands that had started up. Blue Tongue was very successful. A couple of others weren't. And we looked at them and, and thought there was a better way to do this. And the other common theme that we saw with all these startups was often brewers or home brewers that were very passionate or funnily enough, IT professionals that were sort of beer geeks that were coming into it. And there weren't actually startups coming at with a very commercial view. And I say that kind of with no shame, you know, amongst all my peers and mates in the beer industry, that we didn't come to it with any big beer credibility. We came to it where there's a commercial opportunity here and we think it'll be fun. And so we, uh, we embarked on that. We had no idea how to start a beer business, how to make beer or do anything like that. <laughs> But we threw everything at it and we would meet, you know, morning, every morning before going to the office at eight. And then at night, we'd be on Gmail chat, which was popular back then, sitting on the couch next to our wives, like brainstorming how we're going to do this. So we off we went to a brewery south of Sydney. It was January 2007 when we gave the mandate to a brand firm in Adelaide to start designing up what became Vale Ale. And it took us a year to do all this, get the brand right, get packaging, brew it, develop the recipe with a brewer and put it all together. And we had chosen Adelaide because Adelaide, whilst we were both living in Sydney, Adelaide is where we grew up and we wanted to get away what I call the East Coast clutter, you know, so Sydney and Melbourne, lots of startups and beer happening and, and nothing in Adelaide other than the big old established Cooper's business. So we chose Adelaide and one day at lunch we were debating sort of urban, so CBD versus regional, and we both knew and holidayed in the McLaren Vale region. And sitting at lunch in Sydney one day, brainstorming names and ideas and Vale Ale just rolled off my tongue, which was so simple, but it hadn't come up and it rhymed. So we were pretty excited <laughs> and off we went. So that was, um, that was September 07 when we finalized the brand and the name. And by the end of the year, we had beer and the first two brews of beer that we did were infected and had to be thrown out. And <laughs> we had invested everything we had, $100,000 between us, 50 each. And I was just lucky that I'd left Renker and I'd, I'd had shares. Renker had been a great stock market success and, and the money I took out of selling that went into Vale And we were faced with losing everything because the beer kept you know, this brewery being infected and wrong. So we've sent out samples and, and it's sort of one of my things that you know, Craig here talks to us all the time about and we'll come on to that about resilience. I sort of say keep punching, which is bouncing back because after the first brew being thrown out, you pretty much would normally give up. Is that your whole like investment? Like It is everything. Everything's sitting in 2,000 cases of beer and it's stuffed. So luckily the owner of the brewery says, look, you know, we acknowledge that it's our problem, we'll, we'll do it again. But you've lost all your packaging and everything like that. So you've got to rustle up and do that again and then get the brewery to pay for it. Then uh, I'm at a function one night cracking in the second beer and it starts coming out of the brewery, it's fine. Two weeks later, it starts foaming over. I'm like, oh, here we go again. Turns out that had a micro problem and, and hadn't been tested and whatnot. So this is all brewing processes and things like that that I wasn't aware of and you know hadn't thought about and you sort of trust the brewers and the process of the brewery to do it. But again, that was a problem and we had to rebrew again. So it wasn't until the third brew 
that we got it right and a lot of heartache and a lot of should we just give up and it's been a costly, interesting lesson. But we stuck at it and we finally had decent beer early in 2008. We threw it into a few friendly venues and I left APN News and Media in July 08 and went full-time and that's kind of the start of the third startup phase really. So July 08, left the safety of a, um, a corporate salary and everything that comes with it I've got my first child, so my son was born in 2007, and off I went. So I've got no income, a wife and a son, a beer that's just launched and it's had two bad brews. To add to that, I thought it might be a good time to do my MBA. <laughs> and uh, I'd always wanted to do an MBA during my corporate life. I'd always looked at INSEAD, you know, doing the one-year intense or MBS or London, whatever, and just never could fit it in and there was always something else. And just it was the right time, I thought, to squeeze it in because I was time flexible and you could finance it. So it wasn't a cash issue, not instantly anyway. So I flew down to, to here, to Carlton and, and had a tour and, and whatnot. Put in my application, luckily got a very small sponsorship with Helped and then financed the rest of it and off I went. And day one, September 2008, met Craig and Rachel and James and that was the EMBA at the time, now the SEMBA. So four residential, you know, one month, I'm sure a lot of you have done. And it was, for me, combined with starting up Vailal. I mean, Vailal had started, but it was 2,000 cases of beer in five venues. And the challenge for me was then to take it to something. And so that was the next three and a half years of my life. And MBS and these guys sitting in front of me here were a big part of that because in class, I'd take every opportunity to talk about Vailal <laughs> and get free advice from professors and classmates and whatnot about brand around processes with Canaan and, you know, cycle times around brewing and the bottlenecks of the brew house then which vessel is the bottlenecks of the four-step brewing process. <laughs> I'd never thought about or really comprehend until Canaan. If that's the only thing I got out of Canaan's lecture, it was brilliant. <laughs> Understanding cycle times and then confidently being able to talk about it with brewers was great and then mapping out what kind of brew house I wanted to buy when we eventually had cash to do that. So, so Vailau was 2008. For me anyway, Vailau still exists um, and is now part of a bigger beverage group and I exited that business in December 11. So along the way, there was a year and a half of just me not pulling a cent out, funding myself, four pack of beer under my arm and going around the country seeing, testing three things. Could I sell beer? Would people buy our brand? Would they you know, buy the Vailau brand initially and then like the product, the, the, the beer that was inside the bottle? And then lastly was our hypothesis about the beer industry correct? So it, was it going to actually take off and would there be a shift from, structural shift from mainstream beer into, um, into craft beer or premium beer or boutique beer, whatever you want to call it? And that all proved correct. And so at the end of 2009, Dave, my mate, um, who we'd started at 50-50, but he was silent because he stayed doing his corporate career yeah. and, and I jumped out to have a crack. And so we decided to have a swing of the bat and raise capital. So we started doing that. That was a small raising from three high net worth individuals close to me. And we brought in, you know, two, three $300,000. I can't remember the exact number which allowed us to ramp up. So we used half of that to buy a hospitality venue in McLarenville and I employed my first person and that all happened uh, the 1st of January 2010. So at that point I've actually got cash in the bank and a business and I ran really hard for the next two years and brought in other investors, put on uh, a big team. So we went from one salesperson, me, to me plus six 
we bought the hospitality venue and then we started planning a brewery and we did all that and that was a two-year run where along the same time Mountain Goat here in Melbourne, Stone and Wood started uh, in the same year in 2008 in Byron Bay, Four Pines in Sydney and Feral in Perth. So it was about five of us that really led the charge to grow independent craft beer and start grabbing taps. So whilst we were competing each other, we were also growing the segment and, you know, three of those names I mentioned, I would suggest we were all equal highest growth for those two years and went from basically zero litres to a million litres. Deals with Dan Murphy's and Coles, lots of venues around the country. We won the Hottest 100 craft beer judging thing that happens every Australia Day. You know, ticked a lot of boxes, had a lot of fun, wore ourselves out. The problem for me in, in that whole journey was two things. I was commuting between... Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne every week because I was living in Sydney, the businesses in Adelaide and doing all of that and I'd also diluted myself severely. You know, when you start with a business partner, you're already at 50 instead of 100 and through being your first startup, valuation and just bringing in the number of shareholders it takes to when you make some mistakes and maybe burn more cash than you should and then you need to do something like build a brewery which is capital intensive, then it automatically and when you've got no credibility, you can't go and get bank finance and so you can't go and pitch a $20 million valuation and, and get $2 bucks and only dilute yourself 10%. So I ended up down under 20% and then towards sort of 15 And at that point, you shouldn't because it's not about what percentage you own, it's what might that be worth ultimately without sounding too capitalist. You know, it's better to have 15% of something massive than 100% of something, something small. But something great happened in 2011 in Vale, which was Fosters came along and Fosters were watching this whole craft beer juggernaut take off and they wanted to be in it. They did. They met the leading craft brewers around the country and, and we were one of them. And I'm going to talk about this now because there's no confidentiality because they've been bought and sold, you know, twice since then. And we did a deal and it was great for them and it was great for us. So my shareholders are like this getting really excited. You know, we're only really a couple of years old and still a loss-making high growth business and we've got Fosters and it was called Fosters back then, you know, not SAB Miller, not CUB. It was the old listed Fosters company. So I've, the good thing was my background enabled me to talk the talk so I could actually deal with the, the corporate types at Fosters and they could see the beer passion, the team and the culture and the brand that we had developed but they could also, I like to think, talk shop with me and talk about shareholders agreements and finance and valuation and governance and all the things that a lot of startups don't have but are important to big companies. So we were able to do a deal. It took six months. By September 2011, we had a, a deal on the table where they were going to acquire 20% of the business of McLaren Bale Beer Company, also give me 100 venues. So, you know, Fosters have a lot of top tap contracts. They were going to give us access to an extra 100 venues. So our draft presence would have gone off the roof. We'd have access to technology, know-how, learnings and all that and it was all great and they'd have an option on another 20% of the business but we were never selling the whole thing. So it was going to be a partnership and we were going to be like, you know, leapfrog into the largest craft beer business in the country by far. Literally two weeks after we've agreed the term sheet, SAB Miller lobbed their bid for Foster's and it all went not pear-shaped but that was a massive thing and uh, Foster's suddenly went into takeover mode and this deal was so small on paper that it was under the, the thresholds where they could definitely deal the deal. But they just went, you know, that you'd be weeks before you'd hear from the head of M&A coming back. Meanwhile, we're out of cash and we've got to keep growing the business and do things. So, And John Pelez with the CEO at the time and 
he was involved and talked to me and said, no, we still want to do this and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, we couldn't wait. So we had to um, go down another path. So um, to ramp up the volume, we agreed a, a great relationship and deal with Woolworths for Dan Murphy's to take our product nationally, raise capital from existing shareholders. But by the end of this whole process, the end of 2011, I was exhausted. Uh, I'd obviously diluted myself down and I was ready for a fresh challenge and I thought that I would start up a new business in, in Sydney, so closer to home without the travel, take all my learnings and own 100% of it rather than 15% of it. So I did. So my mates and I sold out. I had uh, four mates involved in that business at the end of it and then three external shareholders. So the three external shareholders bought us out. We all parted and, and went our way and my mates you know, had their day jobs and I um, took three months off. And during that three months off, the idea was to plan a new brewery in Sydney. And it was then I thought about it and thought, wow, beer is really competitive. I might have a crack at being a supplier to the industry. And I'd be through the Vale experience, I'd been running kegs. And kegs are hard. And that was our greatest bottleneck. Because for most of the time, we were contract brewing the product. We effectively had unlimited capacity. We could keep brewing as much beer as we could sell. That was fine for bottles and putting in pack, but we're continually running out of kegs because kegs you've got to buy, buy the container. They come from Europe and every container costs $100,000 and you just don't have that lying around as a small business. And then there's a lead time. So you can go and invest in the kegs and you're not sure if you've got the demand, but by the time you get the demand, you're going to lose it because you've got to wait six months for the kegs. So there's this kind of chicken and egg relationship. And there was a model that existed in the US and I went to the US every twice a year to see what was going on there. And all the brewers in the US rent their kegs. They don't, most of them don't own them. And there's one big player there that at one point in time was actually owned by Macquarie Bank, their private equity area. And it was a big established model that I was aware of. And our industry here in Australia, we're always talking about when might that model come to Australia and might, would Linfox do that or would Microstar, they're called, would Microstar from the US come to Australia or would just a family owned warehouse do it? And no one was, so I thought I'd have a crack So I did. So I bought a um, container of kegs, went over to San Diego in 2012 and bought a container of kegs. They came over and uh, I sent out an email to everyone I know in the beer industry in November 2012. Along the way, I had been one of the founders of the what was then called the Craft Beer Industry Association, which is now called the Independent Brewers Association. So through that, I'd built my own sort of brand and reputation in the industry. I'd formed a lot of relationships. A lot of them became mates and a lot of them became just professionally aware of who I was so I just emailed everyone and said I've got kegs does anyone want them and I had 180 kegs $100,000 worth of kegs and yes so Stone and Wood who are now the largest um, independent you know craft brewer in the country came back and said yep we'll take half of them so invoice number one was December 12 2012 to Stone and Wood 440 kegs and that's how Kegstar started and so I then rented the rest and they'd come back, we'd re-rent them and, okay, this is starting to work. So, Mike expanded a bit and a mate of mine, a, a very successful serial entrepreneur from New Zealand who'd been a shareholder in Vale Isle, kept saying to me, I love this, I love this business, you know, you're just buying an asset, you just keep turning it, keep turning it and, and collecting revenue and it's in beer. So, you know, it's brilliant. So, Shane has always said, if you need more capital, I'm in. So, that was the second venture that Shane had been involved with me. So, he came in with a bit more capital. So, we bought more kegs, 2,000 kegs. So, after another sort of six months of doing this, it was again time to have a swing of the bat. Because brewers were starting to rely on us, brewers and cider producers, even though we only had 2,000 kegs, a couple of them were. And I was very wary of 
damaging their business if we suddenly did this half-heartedly. So it was that moment where we either had to shut it down or do it properly. And so we did and we say have a swing in the bat. So that was, you know, July 2013. And so we decided to raise, you know, serious capital and have a global plan for Kegstar. I knew it could be done globally around the world, but it was going to take a lot of capital. So one of the things I'd learned from uh, Vailal is just how hard raising capital is. And I had a background in it and even having a background in it and being able to do it pretty much yourself, it still takes hours and hours and hours and it's very mind-numbing. You've got to have coffee with a thousand people and all of them you know, say yes but don't have the money or say no thanks but good luck. And it's hard. So when I was going to raise capital for Kegstar, I decided to run two processes in parallel and not have all my eggs in one basket. And so I raised, just started a private high net worth capital raising and at the same time I started a trade capital raising and the whole plan was whoever puts the money in the bank first is the strategy that we'll pick. So it was pretty simple. Same terms for both parties? Same valuation. Okay. Yeah. And the question was like who was going to negotiate because it's very rare that you put a valuation out there and everyone says, okay, you can have that. And so we started in parallel. We appointed a small boutique firm to help with the private raising and we had a short list of who might be interested at trade. And I'd heard on the grapevine that Brambles, which is the parent company of Chet Pallets, had looked at beer and done nothing about it. And on paper, they are the perfect investor and knowledge base of pooling assets because Chet's the largest sort of owner of assets in the world, I think, because there's a gazillion pallets running around the world and it's exactly the same as what we do in kegs. You own one asset, everyone uses it. It makes no sense for people to have their own kegs or their own pallets. So I literally one late one night, 11 o'clock on a Monday night, guessed Tom Gorman, who was the CEO of Brambles, I thought, what's his email going to be? So um, <laughs> put every put we are one tom.gorman at brambles.com into the two field and then BCC, I guessed every other combination, hoping that <laughs> one of them would get through. And I flicked it off saying, hi, Tom, I've started this you know, business. We both happen to be in Sydney. I've got a background in the beer industry and I've incubated Kegstar here in, in Sydney and I've got a global plan for it. Let us know if you're interested and nothing for two weeks until the head of M&A rang up and said, uh, yep, we got your email, let's talk. That was September 2013 and that took six months and by April, March 31st, April 14, we had a deal and Brambles invested into Kegstar as well as providing a debt facility so that I didn't need to bring a bank involved and, and make it complicated. And ultimately, we were a tiny, tiny, tiny part of Brambles and an experiment and so, you know, I'd gone from 100%, bring in Shane, to, and I went down to 70%, brought in Brambles, and I went down to 45%. Actually, I was at 50, and I sold an extra 5% to Brambles so I could pay some bills and keep the home bank account turning and keep the ATO off my back. So that's what we did. And so in some ways, for me, Kegstar started in April 2014 because up till then it was two of us, myself and one other, and 2,000 kegs and a dream and we couldn't do anything without capital. So from April 14 to now, we've just been running as hard as we could and we've done that. So what we do, we own kegs and we rent dirty, empty kegs to brewers. And so the brewers will then clean and sanitize the keg, fill it with their product, send it off to uh, a bar directly or via a warehouse, and then we run around and pick up the empty kegs from the, from the venues. It's very similar to the Brambles. It's identical. Yeah. It's identical. So that's what we do and uh, what we've added to it as a business is add tracking and technology to it. So if you ask any brewer around the world how many kegs they own, they won't know the answer. 
They'll know how many they've bought, but they won't know how many they own because they don't know how many they've lost because they just go out and hope they come back. So if you go to a pub and just and now you've heard this talk, you'll actually spot our kegs everywhere, but you'll also go and look at all the lion kegs sitting there. And all that happens is a truck comes up, drops all the new beer off and picks up the kegs that are there. But there's no reconciliation of how many have come back. So if you ask the big brewers, they'll say, oh, roughly 500,000 kegs, you know, but we've bought 650 and we bug it if we know where the others are. It's just an annual capex expense they keep to top it up. So we started from day one with a keg fleet that had barcodes on them, 2D barcodes, so like a matrix code, as well as an RFID tag. And I did that from day one. And it's probably the only smart thing I've done uh, with Kegstar, which is to make sure we didn't have to retrofit. I didn't know how we were going to use them, but I knew if we had to go back and do it, it would never happen. So we did that from day one. And then we started using an off-the-shelf um, startup technology app to scan our kegs. And it was a great thing to do, but that business wasn't scalable and they're a startup and we were breaking their system. And so at the first board meeting with the Brambles representatives, so this is June 2014, I said, right, we actually need to build our own software. We need to own this space. We need to own the technology. It needs to be proprietary and it needs to be a core competitive advantage or you know yeah. benefit of our system. So we did, again, not knowing how to start a beer company and brew beer. I had no idea how to build software or anything like that. So we um, we just employed a software coder and my other guy that worked for me and I just sat down with a whiteboard and a big sheet of paper and started drawing up what a system should look like. And then Alex, who was our first coder, who loved to eat chicken and chips every lunchtime <laughs> with his headphones on, just started um, coding away. And we did. We, we call it Tracks, Kegstar Tracks. And so from July 2014, we've built what we think is world-class technology and an ecosystem of tracking kegs. And we've started from Australia. We're now in five countries. That was kind of April 14 that Brambles came in. Only 12 months later, we had a system. I called a board meeting in June 14 and announced that we should start in the UK. Luckily, everyone said, yep, that's a great idea. I mean, Brambles had invested and their message from day one had been, we've got no interest in a little ANZ, Australia, New Zealand-based keg business. We want something global with revenue of 100 million or more. So I was very clear on the expectation and that fitted with the dream that I'd sold them anyway, which is this can be big and it can be global and that I have and our team has the capability to pull it off. The um, keg universal, so, you know, we've got the pint in London, the pot here, the schooner in Sydney. It's, it's like that. It's different everywhere. So, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. if only it was standardised and you look at a pallet and you think that's standardised, but no, pallets are different in every part of the world. So kegs are, I mean, a keg's a keg, it's stainless steel, it has a valve, but the keg's shape changes. So if you look at, without boring you of the details, but I want all of you to go to a pub over the weekend and see if you can see a keg star keg, but also look at the difference between a CUB keg and a line keg. And so the two major brewers thought they'd have unique advantage by having different keg shapes and different keg valves, and that would tie them into the pub and it was probably great in the early days back when that happened, but now every pub is used to having both types of beer on tap. So you've got a different keg shape coming in and a different valve coming in. So the poor publican's got to have all these type of connectors to serve as both product. And so the benefits of having individual kegs like they did are now a problem because moving beer around the world between countries, between cities and between brewers and the big brewers are buying up you know, craft breweries now. So when CUB buys a craft brewery, they generally have um, either our kegs 
or a keg the same as us and CB is on a very different system. So then it's operationally hard for them and all that kind of thing. So kegs are very different around the world and we're now trying to standardise them as much as we can given we've now got a big presence in the market. So we decided to launch in the UK. One month later, my wife and two children moved to London for six months and we kicked off that and we launched in the UK. And during that period, we needed to raise more capital. And this is one of my learnings. I would call it a stuff up. It was a great thing and learning for me in the end, which was when you've got a shareholder like Brambles uh, on the register and they had, you know, buyout clause and all that kind of stuff, but we sort of ignored all that because we were raising capital early. And when you've got an investor like that, the ultimate outcome that everyone expects is that they will end up with 100%. And I said, look, we need to raise capital now, not wait to the end of the buyout period because we're going to do the UK and we're going to do the US. And they agreed. I said, but... I don't want you to be any more than 75 or 80%. I want to stay, first of all, I want to retain equity. It's not for the sake of retaining equity because that can be solved through earnouts and other things. I didn't want a 100% owned business because I knew the cultures are different between a massive top 20 ASX company and a startup. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But that all to this day remains a conflict between a big company and how we grow and run hard around the world. But what it's been a great partnership and, and up to recently, the group CFO of Brambles who retired last year was you know, the one I did the deal with. He was the shareholder representative on the Kegstar board. He became kind of a mentor to me. We, got, we were in sync. We became mates and we really ran Kegstar hard and he played the role of shielding me and Kegstar from the Brambles group not getting involved in group IT and group HR and procurement and all that yeah. stuff, which is great for a big company, but slows a small company like us down. And we weren't ready for it and we're still not ready for it. So when we ride hard, it's been great. So it has been a great partnership. And we've now looked in five countries, Australia, New Zealand, UK, Ireland, and the US. And I've sat down with my senior team last week to map out the next three years. And we've got another five countries on the list in terms of scale, we are about to be 400,000 kegs. And remember back in April 14 when I brought Brambles in, we had 2,000 kegs. You know, So the world's largest asset pooler was investing in a, diff- in a business that had a serviced office in Surrey Hills in Sydney, two dudes and 2,000 kegs and uh, bugger all revenue. But we did a deal. They bought into the dream and we've been running hard ever since to deliver on that dream. And we're only partway into the journey. So Australia, New Zealand, you know, we've created the market. Uh, UK, we went in as an underdog and we remain that, but we're the challenger and we're winning uh, with the two incumbents that are there. And the US is a very well-serviced industry um, with heaps of players. And we are being, we've been there nine months and that's hard. And we have a plan to win and we have a plan to get to being a global business. So it's fun. We have great customers. We're in the beer industry, so how bad can it be? And we have a plan for Kegstar to be, you know, the kind of owner of kegs and, and keg pooling and keg solutions around the world. So wow. it's probably longer than you wanted, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> thanks for sharing. So I just had one question. It's probably around personal health. So we sort of had a chat about this before we started talking. And, I mean, that's such demanding roles. And I, I can't imagine how many sleepless nights or the amount of, anxiety potentially that it would cause you know with Foster's deal falling over and these capital raising things with businesses that potentially aren't earning revenue to cover the bills so do you want to talk about talk us through just some of the things you do to help you manage your your personal health sure and look I'm not perfect at it by any means but I'm slowly getting better at it I mean if you talk about the bad side first which was 
you know, I burnt out in 2013. It was a delayed reaction from the Vale Ale days of doing a startup, cash, having children, doing an MBA, literally being on the verge of bankruptcy because you owe the ATO and you've got student finance and all that. But you're pushing hard and you're running on adrenaline and it's fun and all that, but it's also an industry of excess. So free beer, like for us, you know, we're also in VLR, we're making it. In Kegstar, we are mates and very and we're partners with all our customers. So access to booze, I'll call it, you know, whether it's beer, cider, wine, spirits, and we're entertaining all the time with customers and, and venues and whatnot. So it's in abundance and we also with VLR had a hospitality venue which I've never run or do anything with. So you're getting involved in the, the with the chef and you're doing a wine list with a master of wine. It's all fun. And at the same time, you're like, I was, I was exercising, but um, you're running hard. You're going from, you know, 5, 6 a.m. in the morning and then at night you're catching up doing all your board reports or shelter communication or whatever, children, family, travel. And it just literally for me, it caught up and uh, it didn't happen immediately. And it actually didn't happen to when I was starting Kegstar. So it was literally, and it was after I'd started Kegstar, it was when I was starting to raise capital. So I exited, you know, VLL in December 11, and it wasn't until September 13 that where I literally physically burnt out and couldn't move and couldn't get off the couch for like, you know, a month. It's physically, you know, hard and mentally hard to bounce back from that. And Craig, who's sitting here in front of me, which may mean nothing to you all on the podcast listening later, but for those in the room right now, Craig's business is helping build high-performance teams and building resilience and stress management and all those tools. So I went through all that and it's now having experienced in myself a big focus with the Kegstar team about how do we manage that because we are a startup running hard, lean, and we're in five countries and it's exploded in 18 months. So for me as a leader adapting to leading that which i'm not skilled or qualified or you know you're making it up as you go that you have to teach yourself to how to lead and run in that way you've also got to teach yourself to have resilience and your team too and so i keep watching and i've having i've had two of my team also burn out over the last 18 months and that's despite the effort we've put into it so what are the you know how do you prevent that i'm now a lot more rigorous about my own schedule pushing back not being on an email late at night and doing all the bad things that add up to, you know, the risk of burnout. Managing, um, we still, I mean, work hard, play hard. So we're still, I love a great big dinner with beer and wine more than anyone, but I've cut out lunches. So I don't ever, you know, people invite me to lunch, I don't because you don't need it. You're busy and it just adds up to, particularly in the beverage industry, there's the risk that you end up having three beers at lunch. And it's great because you might be with a customer or someone, but ultimately you also got to prioritize your health. And if I do that, I, my performance goes down. If I'm off entertaining and drinking for a week, my output is incredible and you feel it. So we focus on balance, you know, with the team. And, you know, so these days we try and do less kind of team building things in pubs and we try and do it outdoors or play tennis or, you know, do all of that and try and build a bit of balance into it. So there's no, we haven't cracked the nut. We just keep revisiting it and trying to work out sort of how to do that, you know, because as, when I, when I broke down and doctors would keep telling me it's the flu and you'll get better and it was only when my wife, you know, cracked and said, go to my naturopath and the naturopath took one look at me and said, you'll be one of those healthy people running and fall over one day and die. So, um, <laughs> that was a big wake up. Yeah. So, so now it's about managing that and like I fell off the bandwagon last year with health and fitness and all that. I'm never 
bad and out of it and so um, it's getting back into that and just managing your family life and your work life and everything else a lot better. No, thanks for sharing. So, yeah, we've got the pleasure of a, a live audience today, so I hope you've all found the, the conversation really engaging. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List.